When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a diehard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. That's the moment I realized, oh my gosh, like they're in on this too. Michelle. Hey, Carling. Do you want to tell the people who we are? Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) We are... We are Michelle and Carling. We've been best friends for over 20 years. We've been through our fair share of trauma. And so we thought we should probably start a podcast about it. And so we interview everyday people with incredible stories to share. And no topic is off limits. And we didn't pre-discuss what are we going to share. I know, I was just wondering What's a little tidbit? Okay. So I'll ask you, what's okay. the most trouble you got into when you were a teenager? I can't think of something that I was like a pretty, I say a good teenager because I was like, you know, I say responsible, but the story that came to mind was a certain 18th birthday party for our friends. And I was already 18. And so I thought when your friends turn 18, how funny would it be to get them a stripper a male stripper. What didn't occur to me until many years later was that there was a lot of like underage kids there. Yeah. That did not occur to us for years later. And like, I probably could have gotten the stripper could have gotten. Yeah. Totally. That I was just like, that I went into the yellow pages that tells you how old we are Mm -hmm. and got a stripper, a cop, Sergeant Peel. Yeah. But I don't know that I ever got in like real trouble. I think for you, like you were almost like the adult in, in your teenage years, you were a lot of times the grown up, and you yeah, I had a lot of independence, a lot more mature, and had a lot of independence, and you, you were just like, yeah, we'll get a stripper, like of course, and yeah. you were always like the party planner, so you're like oh, planning, yeah. rent out the party room, get the stripper, get the BYOB. But I was so responsible about it because I made sure we had a safe space. I made sure an adult knew what was happening. I made sure that everybody was taken care of and nobody was drinking too much. But I guess that was probably like, I don't want kids now doing that. No. And I will say that I I had my first drink with you. (laughs) With your encouragement. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And we told my mom that I was sleeping over at your house, but we were like at Dale's house drinking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And how many times did I call a friend's parent Uh to be like, hi, this is Devin's mom. I'm just calling to see if it would be fine if Alicia stayed over for the night. 
But like we weren't out breaking into houses and like no, sleeping no. around. We, we, we were, were just a bunch of drama kids. nerds. Yeah. Recreating scenes from like yeah, Chicago. Play. Yeah. <laughs> My fair yeah. lady. Well That's drinking. So funny. Your nickname in high school was the corrupter. Oh. <laughs> But listen, if this is what we did to be a corrupt, corrupted, I feel like yeah. we did okay. Yeah. Show tunes, choreographed dance numbers. Absolutely. We were on the tame side for sure. Yeah. Nobody was doing like cocaine by the pool or anything no. like that. No. <laughs> I will say this was a this was an almost getting in trouble situation because my parents are a lot of times don't like conflict. So if mm-hmm. they knew that I did something, they would just pretend I didn't do it. Or like they passive aggressively talk about it like later, you know what I mean? And so yeah. we were at our friend's house. It was new year's Eve. <laughs> this was at Tessa's house. We were oh in her God. basement and the guys were there. And remember how Chris used to work at a liquor store? Yeah. I don't know how we got the liquor, but he'd bring it over. <laughs> her mom was out. Then she came back and caught us all drinking and we all had to go to bed. And then the next day she said, I'm going to, my mom was coming to pick me up for church. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to talk to your mom. Like when she gets here. And I was like, Oh no way. And so literally like, as soon as I saw my mom's car, I like booked it to the car and I was like, drive, drive. Like, go. <laughs> oh my God. Because I was just waiting for her mom to come out and be like, Donna, I need to talk to you about something. And yeah. Tess had all of our phone numbers up on her whiteboard and she erased them all <laughs> so that her My mom couldn't call her God. <laughs> all right. <laughs> How was your week? It was okay. I had a little, I don't know, like a good thing. I was saying that last week I had work drama. This week it's a little bit better and things are looking up and different. Yeah. So I'm excited. Good. There might be like a potential new position that I'm taking on and at a new place and not having to drive so far to work. So yeah, you have, you deserve to have something to look forward to and yeah. Thank you. So yeah. So if you didn't hear about my work drama, check out our Patreon and I know, but now I messed up the schedule and you're going to have to wait until January 7th, (laughs) but it's all good. It's going to be exciting. Eventually everybody will figure it out, but Yeah. yeah. good i don't want to get too excited because things really can good. happen things can change but so far it's good yeah. and i don't think much else happened nothing that i can really think of that's great yeah i guess that's a good thing right how about you i had two funny things happen i had to write them down so i gotta look at them oh so the first one is do you ever wake up and you're talking in your sleep but you wake up and you have a slow realization that what you're saying isn't making any sense yes So I woke up the other night and I was like looking around the bed, like moving things and trying to find spot my little stuffed dog from a child when I was a kid, like my little childhood stuffy. Lindsay in her sleepiness was like, what are you looking for? And I got sassy. I was like my stuffed dog that I sleep with every night. Like my idiot. And I was like feeling around. And then I don't think she woke up enough to register it. But I rolled over and then as I was thinking it through, I started waking up enough to realize that like, oh, I have not slept with my stuffy in like 20 some years. years. And then, yeah, I started like chuckling to myself and then I fell back asleep and didn't think about it again until that is the morning. So but now I want to try and find it because he was a pound puppy. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Pound, Pound Puppies? Puppies? Yes, they were so yeah. cute. Yeah, and, and his sloppy. name was Spot, Aww. and I carried him everywhere. 
And he had, he came with, I imagine it was like a little sound machine, but like from the 80s or 90s. Okay. So it like barked or something, but I had taken it out because it's not comfy to sleep with. But then I would put little like trinkets and stuff inside his little pouch. Oh, that's so cute. I love that. And do you remember the pound puppies? Like that actually gave birth. So you like unvelcroed their stomach and they had puppies okay. inside. So we're about to record a Patreon and on my list is Puppy Surprise. Oh. And there was Puppy okay. Surprise, Kitty Surprise, Pony yeah, yeah, Surprise, yeah. I think. So I've got some like nostalgic, like unlocking core memories of childhood commercials. Yes. Love that. Oh, that's I did so that. funny. And then the other thing I was going to say is I unlocked a skill that I think I have that... I should probably change career paths. And that is to be a synchronized figure skating judge. Oh, okay. Okay. I went, my stepdaughter, Olivia does competitive synchronized figure skating, which I didn't even know was a thing. I love it so much. And that's when there was a, that's when like they all skate together. Yeah. So it's like figure skating, but it's, I think like teams of, I think it's like minimum eight up to 20 and they have, like, depending on the level that they're at, they have a certain amount of elements that they have to do and a certain level of difficulty and all this stuff. And so she's like pretty good and she's on a juvenile team. So we were at the arena all day yesterday watching all the teams from, they're from all over Alberta, BC, there was a team. And I have never ice figure skated. I did competitive okay. roller skate figure skating yes. in the 80s when I was like five. Uh-huh. But like I was watching and I was critical and okay. was like, I was like, look at their faces. Can't they <sighs> smile? The music's picking up. The music's picking up. And I'm like, their arms, they need their arms. And I'm like, suddenly I know oh, all the like things that I need to know. Yeah. 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 And I was like, Lindsay, why aren't I over there on the judges table? <laughs> I'm like the I next competition think... you're going to be sitting at the table. Yeah. You're going to just like make up like a judge pass and just like go and sit with them. <laughs> I just feel like I could really be of use to solve them. Yeah, absolutely. So what did we do on our lunch break? We immediately went over to hockey, world hockey, skate something. Okay. Anyway, some mm-hmm. sporting store. I bought a pair of ice skates. Oh, That's awesome. They're just recreational skates. And if I am able to learn to skate, there is, it's called A3, and it's an adult beginner team. Oh my God. I will come and watch you so fast. And so me and Lindsay, and then Trina said she wants to do it. And a few of the moms on the team, I think skated when they were kids, maybe or something, or maybe some of them played hockey and they want to do it. Oh, MG, that would be the cutest thing ever. I love that. (laughs) I cannot skate. I have tried to skate my whole life. I was in figure skating when I was like little, but probably only for one year. My feet go in when I skate. I don't know if it's a balance thing or what, but like I can't keep my feet straight. And like maybe it's like a muscle thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And like my feet and ankles hurt really badly when I'm skating. Like I have really wide feet. So I think the figures like I could probably do better in hockey skates, but the figure skates just squeeze my feet and they hurt so badly. These recreation skates I got are cushy. Like it's like wearing a pair of winter boots, but there's a blade on them. Oh, I love that. That might work better. Yeah. So we will see how this goes. Please document the entire journey for us. We're going skating tonight. I will take a video. Oh, MG. I'm so excited. Okay. I love that. We've got some patrons that we want to thank. We do. 
So do you want to tell people a little bit about what the Patreon is? Yes. So Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can sign up for where you get two bonus episodes a month from us that you will never hear on the regular feed. There are different levels and depending on the level, you get discounts off merch, you get entered into draws, you get episodes a day early. On our highest tier, which is our ultimate Sefty tier, you also get a video of Mm -hmm. once a month of us talking about lots of things. We invite some of our podcast friends or other friends. We drink and we talk about a topic and we go off on many different tangents. Yeah, it's a good time. And if you sign up for the ultimate Sufti tier, you get a shout out. Yeah. And so I realized because we changed how we do our outros that I haven't been very up on our, on our, what do I call it? Like our shout outs. Yeah. So I want to shout out Robin, who was also a guest on our Patreon, Kelly, Erica, Rebecca, and Samantha. Yeah. Yay. So exciting. So thank you guys so much. It's honestly so fun and it supports the work that we do. It Mm. allows us to put out incredible content or mediocre content, depending on how you (laughs) feel about us. Sam is my friend. And when she signed up, she texted me hashtag Patreon for life. So it's oh, <laughs> great. That's great. But That's a binding so contract. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to sign up for life. You no. could sign up, listen, change, post yeah. or cancel it or pause it, sign back up. And I have a few that I wrote Yeah, so do I. And the beauty of Patreon is yeah. that you're never going to miss any of the episodes. All the past back catalog episodes will be there for you. Yeah, I love it. I love it. All right. <laughs> Should we get into this week's episode with Meg? Yes, we should. All right, but let's get into it. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. Good morning, Meg. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. (laughs) (laughs) That's relative. Have you had a coffee today, Michelle? I have, yes. And I, yes. That's a necessity. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Great. We're so stoked to talk to you. We found you on Instagram, I believe. Yeah. And yeah, you're part of the uh, troubled teen industry. Correct. I'm part of an organization fighting the troubled teen industry. Yes. 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 I was was once part of the troubled teen industry, I have to say. So that is accurate. I was once part of the industry. Yes. I feel I'm so glad, like I don't know much about it, but I'm so glad it's getting so much light shone on it, like the truth of it, because growing up, like I watched Maury and Dr. Phil and Oprah and it's probably Sally, Jesse, Raphael. I don't know who else. And oh, Ricky Lake, I think was a big one. And all of these like, quote unquote, horrible teens were being Mm -hmm. sent off to these wilderness camps. Well, Mm -hmm. the way it's presented to the audience is, yeah, of course they need to go. They're terrible. They're disrespectful. They're all these things, right? And it's like, they're going to go and get help. But then now we're really learning what actually went down at these places. Yeah. And it sounds like you've gotten a feel 
for the deceptive marketing and the fear mongering that goes on because almost you guys were in the spot of being a decision maker. If you're watching the show, like Dr. Phil, you're hearing how scared the parents are and you're like, Oh my gosh, of course they should Mm -hmm. go to this program and look at these horses and look at all the stuff they get to do. And you don't really know what's going on behind those closed doors. And so you're getting a really good feeling for the kind of fear that parents and other decision makers are feeling in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that these businesses thought about things like social media and TikTok. (laughs) The fact that these people were going to get out and have a voice and say something. I would love it if you maybe introduce yourself and then let's find out like where does your story start? Okay. Yeah. I am Meg Applegate and I'm the CEO of Unsilenced. And Unsilenced is an organization that is really fighting to the inequities that exist within the troubled teen industry and the child abuse that's going on. So the reason why I'm drawn to this is because when I was 15 years old, I was abducted in the middle of the night by two strangers that woke me up and they said, you're coming with me. They said, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. I chose the easy way because how scary is that? And did you know in that moment that your parents were involved? No, it was interesting because I was like 15, right? And so I'm in between kid and adult. But I remember being woken up and just feeling like such a kid because I was like, where are you, mom? Where are you, dad? Like, oh my gosh, what? help, help, help. Because you feel like you know everything at that age. And at that moment, I did not know what was going on. I actually remember feeling like I was going to be arrested. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? What's going on? And they said, you're coming with me. And I said, okay, can I go to the bathroom? And they're like, okay, but we have to watch you. So they had to watch me go to the bathroom. And then I wanted to get dressed and they had to watch me too and watch me get undressed. And then at that point, my parents were at the door and they were crying saying, we're not abandoning you. We're not abandoning you. That's the moment I realized, oh my gosh, like they're in on this too. And I started just scream, screaming at them, telling them that I hated them. I'm never going to talk to them again. And I also realized that a bag was already packed for me. And so that was like, oh, wow. Okay. I find out later that was what was recommended to them. They didn't choose to do that. They had told a education consultant my story and she had decided that I'm a run risk, that if I knew I was going somewhere that I would have ran away and gotten pregnant and done drugs and all of the scary stuff they tell parents to get them to make their decision that they're wanting them to make. They put me in the back of an SUV. They drove me to LAX and I wasn't allowed to know where I was going. I remember sitting at the gate and they face you away from the gate so you can't see where you're about to go to. And a few hours later, I ended up in Boise, Idaho at a place called Intermountain Children's Hospital, which is a lockdown psychiatric facility. And I spent six months there. Yeah. And that That was was the first, that was only the first one. I can't even imagine. It's just beyond comprehension. Like that's what happens in nightmares. It's horrible to feel. Honestly, I I know so many survivors that were taken that way and single-handedly it causes the most trauma to, to be woken up like that. I can't wake up ever now without a racing heartbeat because I have paired waking up with trauma. So I am always in a panic when I wake up now, but then it's even more traumatizing when you realize that your parents were just another pawn in the game too, that your good hearted parents were simply just another way for them to take advantage of people. Mm. And they were duped too. And so then now they have trauma. Yeah, because they caused trauma in me and someone else caused trauma in them. And it's just an industry that's just 
It's got so much of that going on. As a parent, you can get to this desperate state. And I have felt that too. I have a teenager who's 13 and I don't, I don't understand them and some of the choices that they make. And you can get to such a state where you're trying to go to professional to get some help and they give you this gift and it's, here you go. This will solve all Mm -hmm. your problems. Part of me wants to ask, what were you like as a teenager? But I want to Mm -hmm. be very clear that it doesn't matter what you were like. (laughs) Go for it. That this this outcome was not the solution, no matter what you were doing. Right. But at the same time, I want to try and get an image of like, what were you doing that was so awful in your parents' view that this was the solution, the best solution? Ask any questions you want. I'm an open book. I think what... I want to really highlight is that what these programs within the troubled teen industry are doing are really pathologizing on normal adolescent behaviors. Now, when I say normal, I don't mean that they don't cause anxiety in parents or make them scared because they very much do. And I myself have an 11 year old, almost 12, who's very much so going through those exact same like ups Mm -hmm. and downs. So with that said, I was being a normal teenager. I was 15. I had started to smoke pot a bit to control my anxiety and try to fit in. I didn't feel like I ever fit in. And I got the answer to that later on in life, why that was. But I just never felt like I had any friends. I also was adopted when I was born, right when I was born. So I I also grew up kind of feeling like I was on the outside. And that was very self-inflicted, definitely not from my parents or my family, but I always felt different. I was skipping out on school. And I was a freshman, so I was skipping out on some classes and got into the wrong kind of crowd. I started having sex and I'd sneak out of the house to smoke pot. I never ran away, but I would sneak out of the house to smoke. I drank a couple times as well. This is back in the days of AOL. If oh, you guys God. remember chat rooms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I was meeting some people from online and going in the chat rooms, going on late at night and going into the locked Wi-Fi box. I guess it wasn't Wi-Fi. It was like more of a, yeah. a, like a uh, router, yeah. like a landline <laughs> router. <laughs> I was going into that locked cabinet and plugging it in so I could talk to friends in the middle of the night. So I was just breaking the rules and being defiant. And we now know that is a really normal part of mm-hmm. childhood. And especially when you're anywhere from 12 to 15, 12 to 18 you're really trying to find your spot in society mm-hmm. independent of your parents. And what that looks like is skipping out on classes, uh, being defiant, going against your parents. And I think that for a lot of people, uh, uh, I'd say a majority of the people that are survivors that I talk to, this is the, the kind of stuff that they get sent away from. And then you can also add in things like self-harm. A lot of LGBTQ plus kids go into this industry it, it, at a very high rate. So we see a lot of people that started to date the same sex and their parents are like, uh-uh, nope, not in our family. They send them away. So they have a very high rate of conversion therapy and trying to scare away the gay. So you see a lot of programs for that purpose as well. And then you add in things like, honestly, behaviors that come from previous traumas. And that in my case was true as well. About two months maybe before I got abducted, I actually was sexually assaulted. And I think that when you're going through grieving those things that happen to behaviors, like what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so parents don't know this. They just see behaviors and they think, ooh, 
behavior, I'm going to fix that behavior instead of looking deeper. And granted, this is back in 2000s when like, we didn't know as much. We didn't have Google. We didn't know how to deal with these kinds of things. And no, we had Maury Povich. That was our <laughs> exactly. We had Dr. <laughs> Phil, guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And we now know, in my opinion, Dr. Phil is, oh, he's very connected to this industry. He has sent many kids to some very bad places, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It really is just wrought with abuse. And this is abuse going back 50 years. This is nothing like new. No. It's actually all traced back to a cult. And it's oh. a cult called Synanon. And that's in Synanon in Santa Monica, California started. That is the start pretty much of the trouble teen industry. Now we did have a bit of a Native American boarding schools in the 1800s that were started to really strip Native American children from their culture and their language to really Americanize them. Canada had a, has a huge history. We called them residential schools. And their slogan literally was to take the Indian out of the child. Like that was their winning slogan to just Very transparent. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. That's, yeah. yeah. So we did the same thing. But when it really took hold is after Synanon. Synanon was a huge cult and it was actually a branch of Alcoholics Anonymous. Back then they didn't allow drug, they didn't allow drug addicts in AA. So this was like an offshoot of AA. And from that, it actually became one of the most dangerous cults in America. Once it disbanded, those really true believers went on to create the offshoots of that, which would become descendants of the TTI. And then as it went down the TTI timeline, it really started to focus on children. And we saw places like Straight Incorporated, Kids, The Seed, and then Seedoo Schools, which was really obviously the start of residentials, uh, boarding schools. It's... this has been going on for so long, and I think that plays into it too. And what Unsilence is trying to do is try to change these social norms, right? And depathologize mental health and depathologize adolescents in general. Why is it an issue if kids are pushing back? Those are the kids that end up growing up and being strong-willed in a good way. You just need right. to know how to raise a strong-willed child, right? So There's I think- a lot of the thinking now that maybe these kids, like you said, have gone through past trauma that hasn't been dealt with. A lot to do with mental health, anxiety, depression, things like that. Is that kind of what the thought is now that we're, we weren't helping these kids the right way with their mental health? We're just trying to, what, beat it out of them? Is that kind yeah. of what... Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has, and we say it a lot, it, it's a tough love mentality, right? right? And there's two camps in that tough love as in thinking natural consequences, and that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about the tough love as in I want you to act in my way, so I'm going to treat you in a not okay way until you start to act my way. So it's a very behavior modification kind of route of thinking and it's really just been passed on if you think about it if you look up the line of the trouble teen industry if your kid's a drug addict you have to do this and this if your kid has depression do this and this and there's not there hasn't been a lot of new thinking and trying to figure out what these kids actually need if you think about mental health as healthcare, which it absolutely is like yeah. mental health is healthcare, and it's just as important that we good get good mental health care clinicians just as much as it is to get good heart surgeons. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in Canada, in the United States, even Europe, anywhere, would you go to a hospital saying, oh my gosh, I'm having a lot of chest pain. And they say, okay, let's open up that rib cage. Let's take a look. And that's what we're yeah. doing. We're sending kids to these extremely like radical facilities and then getting diagnosed instead of trying to figure out what's going on with the kid first before we do something drastic like 
cracking open a rib cage or mm-hmm. sending your child away. And proponents of this industry will come to me and be like, my program doesn't have any abuse and my program doesn't work perfectly great. Okay, let's just pretend for a second that there is no abuse going on in this industry. That's a very big pretend. The act of being removed from your community and your home and your family and placed in that environment is in of itself abusive. Right. Being forced to live away from people that you have bond, bonds with. So I think we're missing a lot of what's going on here just in that aspect of the very, very base of it is abusive to these kids. And you're also completely taking the child out of the decision, mm-hmm. removing their consent. I think you're absolutely correct that losing that autonomy is very abusive as well. And furthermore, as a mom now, I'm way more understanding and clear-headed looking at this than I was before I was a mom. But it's like when our kids have issues, let's say they are being abusive to us, verbally abusive, and they're yelling these nasty stuff. And all kids do this. So this is normal. How come we as parents initially, we think, oh my gosh, something's wrong with them. We need to get them a therapist. We need to get them into therapy. Why can't it be, I need to get into therapy. I need to learn how to be a better parent to this type of kid. Why are we trying to mold the kid into what you're able to handle instead of getting a therapy for us to be able to mold ourselves? Because we're the adults here. We're the ones that are making decisions based in rational thought. They're still having those ups and downs. Their brains aren't developed yet. We got to stop expecting them to act in adult ways and figure out how we can change ourselves to be a better mom or dad to them. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing here is that aspect. And can you share a bit of what was your experience like at the first place that you went? You said first, so I'm, there was Yeah, there's two. <laughs> can you maybe give us an example? What was that first one like for you at 15? The first one was just very residential. You live in a room, you have a motion sensor in between these two people's beds. So if you walk and cross that, it'll alarm will go off in the nurse's station to make sure people aren't hurting each other. They come in, bed checks every 15 minutes during the night. I saw tons of restraints on children. We had a, a quote, quiet room that we called the QR. It was a padded room with a lock. And if a kid was to go against the rules or yell at staff, they would be restrained oftentimes by like at least four adults, like a knee in the back of the neck, a knee in the back of the the shoulder blades. And then if they didn't calm down, they would just pull their pants down. They would get medicine and they would just shoot them up in their butt until they went limp and then carry them to the QR. And so that kind of stuff happened a lot. Very little exercise, very little going outside, horrible food. I actually gained 16, uh, 60 pounds when I was in there for six months so I gained 10 pounds a month what is the age range there was a 12 year old there when I was there so 12 to I didn't see probably 17 12 to 17 at that on my two units that I spent time on and then just all autonomy is stolen from you Mm -hmm. I was on a thing called desk space where I had a bag of yeses and nos. And so I had started off with five nos and one yes. And if I wanted to go to lunch, I had I sat at a desk all day, every day for weeks and weeks. And if I want to go to lunch or programming is what we call it. So lunch or therapy, group therapy, art therapy, OT, watching a movie or whatever we're doing, going outside, I'd have to pick from the bag. So I had one yes, five nos. And so if I picked a no, I wouldn't be able to go. So I'm there for therapy, yet they're holding therapy against me. (laughs) So, which is really weird stuff like that. And so it was a very, very high control. 
there was even one time where they did a lockdown on the unit where we had to stay in our room. I believe it was like for 48 hours and we couldn't leave and we had to just do constant assignments. So write page after page on all of the thinking errors and how they apply to our life and how terrible we are. So it's honestly, it was extremely structured. It was magnetic locked doors. It was very much so a lockdown. The second place I went to was what we call a therapeutic boarding school. And therapeutic is definitely in quotes because it's not therapeutic, (laughs) but that's what it's classified as. And it was in Northern Montana and that I spent three years at. So I was gone for a total of three and a half years. Yeah. And did you go right from the one to the other or was there a home? Um, I was lucky enough. My parents insisted on having a break. They didn't think I needed a break. They wanted me to go straight to the boarding school, but they allowed me to do one week at our family cottage in Wisconsin to hang out with family. So I got a one week break and then I went and it was a very different experience, like very different. This place, in my opinion, was much more of a cult and kind of indoctrinating you into their belief systems. And to be honest, I didn't wake up from that until I was like 33 years old when a chrysalis sister of mine committed suicide. And it caused me to take a look at what had happened and go, wait a second, that didn't shape me. That didn't make me who I am. That was abuse. And that really changed the narrative on everything. When I was in the situation, it didn't seem not okay. So I was 15. This place was small. It was called Chrysalis. And as I said, it's in Northern Montana. So we're in the middle of nowhere in like a log cabin and we live with 10 girls. And then our two therapists are married and we live in a house with them. For the first six months, I was sharing a bathroom with my therapists, oh. <laughs> like in a bedroom right next to my therapists. And we called each other our Chrysalis sisters and we are a Chrysalis family you tell yourself it's normal because this is your fake family, right? You're sent from your family to a place that's supposed to be your family. So you feel okay doing that stuff. But then things would happen and you're like, when you grow up, you're like, ah, it's not as normal as I told myself it was. They very much so strip you of, I don't know, in my opinion, like your self-worth and they make you feel like nothing. I mentioned earlier Synanon, this cult, right? Back in in the late 50s and 60s. And they dubbed something called the game. And the game was where they would, all of the members would stand in a circle and they would verbally abuse and berate each other until they were just beaten down into believing the Synanon values. And this is in my opinion, really what happened in Chrysalis, only we called it circle time. And circle was when you would sit in a circle, it would just be this attack therapy where someone would be in the hot seat and you would hear everything that's just like wrong with you. And then they would go around the circle and people would be like, yeah, I hear this, you're that, and you can't respond. So if you respond, you're being defensive. If you're crying, it's defensive. You basically have to say, thank you for your feedback, no matter what. (laughs) they say. So it's really, it felt like a systematic breaking down of who you think that you are. And then you look to these two people to help build you back up. And that's when the indoctrination comes in and they build you back up according to chrysalis values and chrysalis rules. And the, the way that they tell you that society is, and you believe it. And I ended up graduating this program. Like I have a chrysalis graduation ring 
of a butterfly, which they give to all of their graduates up in my closet. I was one of those ambassadors of this program. It took a long time for me to really see what it really was. And it takes a lot of survivors sometimes time. Because, you know, a lot of programs are very uh, physical. The physical abuse is just very blatant, right? Mm -hmm. And you're getting physically abused. Everyone sees it. It's easier to tease through that's abuse. But when what you feel you are experiencing is very psychological, it can take a really long time to figure out that's really what's going on. Wow. So you're, I have so many questions. So you were <laughs> 15. Were you also doing education? Were you doing high school? So the first program, it was, I had a teacher at Intermountain, but I got so behind in school. So when I got to Chrysalis, I actually had to do a year and a half of work in like a semester in order to catch up and it was all homeschool at that point but chrysalis is actually very unique i don't know any other program in the tti that, that when you reach a level so we have different level systems most ttis have phases or level systems when you reach level two which took me a year and a half that's the level of trust and when you reach level of trust you're able to go to the public high school and so they trust you to go into society. They don't allow you to do that. If, they, if there is any risk of you running away, of not choosing chrysalis rules throughout your day, things like that. So I was very fortunate to have that break during the day when I'm going to school to not have to worry about. It was a really good psychological break that probably saved my life and my mental health. So I actually graduated from Lincoln County High School in Eureka, Montana through that high school, not the Trouble Teen facility. But you have to follow the rules when you're at school. You have to follow the same rules that you would at Chrysalis at school. So there were people I wasn't allowed to talk to because they drink or they smoke. So there was an approved list or an unapproved list. You cannot flirt with boys or you will be kicked out. So there's a very strict list of rules you have to follow. But educationally, I was lucky to have at least a little bit of a high school experience and being able to have that break from being at Chrysalis and it allowed me to get a diploma, which a lot of kids, right. a lot of survivors don't have and go to college after. So it, wow. that was a good, even though it was a really bad education, <laughs> but at least I had a education. They yeah. did also have a homeschool and I'm not actually sure at that point in time, if it was accredited or not, it was definitely not a teacher teaching us. It was the staff yeah. and they don't have, some of the staff don't even have a college degrees, I'm sure. So it, yeah. it was definitely not a teacher teaching us. It was more like read this chapter, take this test. Hopefully and you get a good grade. Was it like self-report? Who was monitoring that you were following the rules when you were in the school? Ah, uh, yes. This is where it gets very... So Straight Incorporated was an, another program that was all about kids and kids that are drug addicts, even though they weren't addicts, they were just like smoking weed or whatever. Yeah. And what they relied on is the other kids. And the, but the other prigs and the kids in the program were saying, oh, they were the staff members almost. And so... Chrysalis, in my opinion, really took a little chunk of that because it's only, I don't even know what the ratio would have been at that point, but the staff can't be watching you at all times. So they rely heavily on holding people accountable. So as you move, as you want to get to level two or work your way up the level system, because you get more benefits in order to do that, you have to hold people accountable. So yeah. you almost think that in order to get ahead in this program so that you can feel more free and like less feel more autonomy, you have to rat out your friends. You have to hold people accountable. You have to even make things up 
because oh it's time for God. you to hold someone accountable and there isn't even anything you could say, but you have to say something, then just make up the fact that they're having an issue. That happened a lot. And that happens in almost every TCI facility. In order to get ahead, you have to rat out your friends and rat out other people because if they find out that you knew, then you are in so much trouble. So what it really, at least for me being a chrysalis, it taught me to always truth dump to this day. Like I cannot lie. I can't. I'm like incapable of lying because I'm scared to crap of lying. (laughs) Just the way that makes my body feel now because it was, I always just had to get fully transparency all the time in order to not get in trouble. And how much interaction with your family do you have through these three and a half years? Like you had the one week at the cabin, but are they involved in this therapy? Are they getting help to better parent? No, not really. So most trouble teen facility programs, they'll say family therapy, but really I'd say it's once a week, once every two weeks, and all of your calls are monitored. So you cannot Mm -hmm. report abuse. You can't say, oh, the owner of the school isn't treating me nice, or he just did this to me because they will hang up and then they will call your parents and say, I'm sorry, they were manipulating you. And so that they are seen as the good people and that you don't take them out of the program. So until you're at So level one is a year and a half, for me at least it was, and I couldn't have a phone call with my parents that didn't have a staff on the phone with me. So they heard everything that was going on. So there's zero chance of messing up or even having a private conversation. And then level two, you have to be an earshot. So the staff is hearing what you're saying. And then level three, it's almost unheard of, like not very many people get to level three, but on level three, you are able to talk to your parents. But at that point, I was already there for three years. So I wasn't going to mess up at that point. I'm not going to lose a level when you're that high up. And so, yeah, they make pretty sure that you're not saying anything that you're not supposed to say. It's sad. I know. And when I say that we had circle, so circle was our quote group therapy and we had it. I'm trying to think, I think three or four times a week. And it would be for like up to from two to four hours each time. It's like super, super long. And then beyond that, I think when I was a level one, I probably got to talk to my parents for an hour every week on the phone with the staff. And then once level two, it was almost like 10 minutes every week. I think. So not very much. They did allow visits. So your parents are allowed to come to visit. And once you're on level two, you are allowed to go on a home visit. But the issue with the home visit is you have to follow the same chrysalis rules when you're at home. So you can't wear a spaghetti strap. You can't wear a bikini. You can't listen to rap. You can't do this long list of things. And if you do, when you come back, you'll get in trouble. So you, they make sure that you're following rules, even when you're not around them. In fact, and this is wild, After I graduated both high school and Chrysalis, I was in college. I was a freshman my first semester, and I got an email from one of my program owners. Weird, right? I'm not a client of theirs anymore. And they said, I heard that you've been drinking, and I wanted to give you a chance to hold yourself accountable and tell me what's going on. So they, the control is real, right? They want control so hardcore, in my opinion. And what's their motive for that? Why... Once you've graduated, they've got your money, yeah. your success. I, I don't even know. I mean, that's really that's the thing. Up. I don't know. But they control you even when you leave. In fact, a lot of chrysalis girls, they leave and then they come back and visit, right? They were our chrysalis family. And so they'll come back and visit. Guess what? You're not allowed to come back and visit if you have drink, if you have smoked pot, if you've done any drugs, you are unapproved. So that same unapproved list at the high school that we had to follow, you are now on that list. 
So if that happens, let's say I'm in college and I drink or I'm doing something and I want to come and visit my friends. They will tell the people still in Chrysalis, this has happened to me, where they told me one of my friends that was in college, they're not allowed to come back because they've been drinking. And they're so then they change the, your friends' minds about the kind of person that that you are right. based on oh. your decisions. So I don't know what their motive is, to be honest, but I all I know is that they had their control over me even after and I my response was very much I'm so sorry I, I love you guys I'm so sorry just fawning all over them yeah, right because I cared family, so right? much yeah, yeah. I cared so much about them is this religion based in any way so they technically know a ton of them are a ton of them are but we were actually forced to go to church though I was forced to go to Catholic Church Episcopal Church I'd never been to those kinds of churches before I was technically Protestant growing up and we go every now and then but there were people who were Jewish who were like forced to go to church with us oh, and stuff eventually after enough complaining they were able to stay home but yeah so we didn't use God in our daily talk or any scripture reading or anything like that like other programs do where they're literally praying away the gay and things like that and preaching these scriptures but a a lot of the industry does have a very religious hold on the programs, especially in Utah. There's a lot right. of wilderness programs, RTCs, therapeutic boarding schools in Utah that are very highly affiliated with the Mormon church. So they have very strict rules and values that they tend to inflict on their the, peop- the kids that come into the program. Yeah. I wanted to circle back to the whole Dr. Phil situation and yeah. anyone else that was filtering these children into these programs. I pretty sure I know the answer to this, but is the motivation behind this all is money, correct? Financial. Yes, of course. They're they're getting a kickback from sending Mm -hmm. children. And then how, with the program, how much money is being put into the program from the parents? (laughs) Oh gosh. So there is two pipelines. There's really the public funds and then there's the private funds and the private funds being the caregivers that are paying out of pocket. Mm -hmm. We have no idea because of a lack of reporting that is required we don't know how many dollars are going in from the parents we do know that 23 billion of public funds are tax dollars are going into these facilities they're going in through the pipeline of uh, special education ieps let's say we have a kid that's highly adhd and through the iep they have to find school for the kid that's required but none of these services are available or in their disruptive in every single classroom so guess what the IEP pays out of their own, the funds, it to go to a, a troubled teen facility. Kids with autism. There's so much so that now they have programs that are based on four autistic kids and will help with, it's absolutely horrible. It gives me, it's just like, it's so cringy. I know. So when we're talking about how much does it cost for these facilities, we're talking about anywhere from five to 30,000 a month that is going oh into these facilities. God. Yeah, a month. Yeah. My God. And then if you go into the bigger parent companies, if you look at SQL and you look at Jess and things like that, then you, because those are hospital systems, you're looking at like Medicare and stuff mm-hmm. being able to pay for some of these things. Mm-hmm. So it's just so many different pipelines of money are coming into them. That's what makes it really hard to fight. Like yeah. This is definitely like David Goliath kind of situation. This is a huge, huge industry and it's very incestuous as well. I talked a little bit about the descendants of the TTI and part of what's happening now is with the media really catching on with Paris Hilton helping us with really speaking out about her experiences her lived experiences and the places that she went is bringing a lot of attention which is really good but now what we're seeing is as these facilities 
really one by one are getting held accountable, not really as a whole system, but one by one, they'll shut down. But what's really frustrating is that when they shut down, they just rebrand and they change LLCs or they literally will stay in the same building, have the same staff and then just rebrand and reopen and say, we're brand new. So that's really what's happening here. Or let's say there's a staff member who was accused of a sexual assault with a patient or, and it really happens honestly very often. What they'll do is they'll handle it internally, right? The staff member will be fired, but guess what? There's nothing preventing them from going and doing it at a different program. And that happens so commonly. Or even with an executive director that gets, let's say a program truly closes, fully shut down. Guess what? They just open up their own program down the street or in a new state. There's nothing preventing them from doing it. How many people are coming out of these programs far worse off than when they went in? As far as the survivors that I talk to, we don't call ourselves survivors for nothing. I would say that not one of us are better off at all. In fact, I forget the exact percentage. I think it's like 75% of people just within on silence consider themselves to have a disability. And I would say, I haven't asked specifically, but probably over 75% have PTSD. And if we don't have PTSD, we have something else that is affecting us daily. And even like people that let's just say had a good experience. Let's just say that, you know, cause there are, there are people that leave and like I did until I was 33 said, well, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. If you look at other effects of it, such as I can't take a long shower because I wasn't allowed to. So I can't take a shower. That's over five minutes. When I eat, I chow down so quickly because I want to be able to have seconds and they weren't always available. So if you look at other after effects, even people that had quote good experiences, you'll even see these kinds of things going on. I'd say probably the most common things we see in survivors are definitely issues with family, issues with family and relationships and being able to retrust. And that's a huge trust that's broken. I myself am very close with my parents. I tell them everything. They're like my best friends. That's very abnormal for a survivor to be able to say that. And I recognize how lucky I am because the act of sending your child away just completely dismantles the relationship between the parents, but also like siblings and the siblings seeing their other sibling going through this. Do you have siblings? I do. I I have a brother, though he was in college already when I got sent away. He didn't really get to experience that, thankfully. But I think that one of the biggest things we see is just issues with trust, issues with relationships, and then issues with just uh, having no feelings of like worth. Like we've been told for so long that we're an issue, we're the problem. We were labeled a troubled teen Mm -hmm. taken from our family and say, oh, you're the problem. So I'm going to remove you and I'm going to put you over here. And because we don't want you to affect the rest of the goodness of the family. So you have that going through your head and then you have these people who are, you know, quote therapists or helpers trying to make you quote better but really all they're doing is just breaking you down and making you have more self-esteem issues and so a lot of us go on to just really doubt ourselves a lot and second guess ourselves because we were forced to second guess ourselves for so long and then it's all compounded by the fact that most of us i'd say if not all of us i don't i don't want to say all we were abused by our therapists and so the people in the world that are supposed to be safe and that are supposed to help you, doctors, therapists, we were abused by, which Mm -hmm. means that when we struggle in our life, a lot of us don't seek therapy. 
because that's dangerous. That is triggering to our abuse is therapists. It just further isolates us and it makes it so much less likely we'll seek help and just so much less likely that we'll be able to experience any reprieve from symptoms. When it comes to the parents, after all of this, are they recognizing like this wasn't the right thing to do? Or are they saying, yes, I made this choice for you and it was the right way to go? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that there's really a, quite a few different options and mm -hmm. some in-betweens, like a spectrum. So there's people like my parents where my dad went to DC with me and was on the lawn and with a microphone telling his story, right? Yeah. And it, my mom and dad said, you know what? I'm really sorry, Meg. We're sorry we made that decision. Now, for parents or caregivers to be able to say that, they have to be able to own the fact that they hurt their children, which as mothers is very hard to do. I know that's like super hard to do. To be able to own, hey, I did something that hurt you. Some, this is just my personal opinion, some parents can't handle that. So they protect themselves from opening that part of themselves up because it'd be too painful to be able to say, I made a decision that was wrong. But then we have the parents that are like, no, no it couldn't have been that bad because you're so successful now. It couldn't have been that bad because look at you. You have your family, you're a great mom or dad or whatever. And then we have parents that sent their kids because they knew it was abusive. And we have the very abusive parents that just wanted to twist the knife with their kid and make things worse. And then we have parents that are more, I don't know, in between not abusive, but just really naive and say that we were just doing what everyone says. A lot of parents kind of brush it off. Yeah. Just yeah. no, 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 no. Don't, let's, not talk about, let's not talk about that. And I, my personal belief is that's really rooted in pain, right? Is they know that they possibly hurt their kids, but they don't want to, you know, mm -hmm. but then once you get through it, you just feel so much more empowered. Not because of them, I'm able to do this and be successful. It's despite them, yeah. I'm able to do this and yeah. be successful. And that's yeah. so that because has to turn into a despite. And, and also just, I don't know, I, I'm hesitant to say it, but like kind of forgiveness, mm -hmm. forgiving, just like letting it go. Holding trauma within your body is really bad for your body. And there's a really good book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's so incredibly true that when you have gone through all this trauma, you're going to start seeing your systems shutting down and being affected. So I found that really just accepting that this happened, accepting that it is what it is. I'm going to do my part to try to heal myself, but I'm not holding any kind of grudges or resentments in my body and just letting it go has helped a little bit instead of just being angry all the time. The people that are running these places or the people that are working in these places, I'm sure there's a spectrum of this as well, but do they genuinely think that they are helping or what is their reasoning for getting into this industry and working in this industry? So there's a couple of different components to that. First of all, a lot of these programs actually are operating in very small places. So like Eureka, Montana's population 2000 people. So they're actually helping the economy a lot. So a lot of these people that are working there and let's be clear, like an hour and a half to the nearest city. <laughs> so mm. a lot of those people that are working there are from that town. They probably grew up their entire life in that town. And this is the economy. That's a big part of the economy, all these staff. I think that there's that where it's, oh, it's an option in the town to just go do that. Not necessarily like, Oh, this is what I want to do. But I think that there are people, there's staff that is both yes and no to that question. There are staff that definitely know what they're doing and there are the abusers in it and they're horrible. But then there's also staff members that 
are naive and just doing what they're told and don't really realize it. And then there's people that, let's say, are even got a bachelor's degree in psychology and kind of can understand and they'll second guess it, right? Be like, wait a second, this kind of goes... This goes against what I thought was okay, but here's when the psychology actually comes in is if you have one person that's thinking that, but then everyone around you is doing it and having no problem with it, you're able to go against your belief systems in a way. And you know, that it's interesting what can happen when you're in that role. It's very much so like the uh, Stanford prison experiment where the college students are in there and these people who are definitely not wanting to abuse people, they end up being harsher and going against their own belief systems because of the situation that they're in. There were certainly staff that I loved at my facility and very much like I look back and I'm like, oh, thank God that they were there. But all it takes is one. All it takes is someone really mistreating you and that happened. And also these programs don't really attract like high... I want to say high quality people, but more high quality educational backgrounds because they don't offer very good pay. So they try to keep costs down, especially if they're owned by a bigger parent company and they're backed by private equity. They want to keep the costs down and pay back the stakeholders and more profit to the stakeholders. You also see that where they're not really incentivized very well. I know a lot of places overwork the staff. They will refuse to play overtime and like just a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So I don't really feel like it attracts people who are there for anything other than either it's available or it's a job. So the industry now, what are you doing? Obviously this is still going on. There's light being shone in a lot of these places, but like you said, they will just rebrand or whatever. So what is your organization doing to help? Is it, are you helping more the people who have come out of it or are you trying to dismantle or both both yes yeah. absolutely both so we've got first and foremost is project speak and that's our newest initiative that we are rolling out speak stands for survivor prevention through education awareness and knowledge and that's really us going into communities and educating the decision makers to really interrupt that community to institution pipeline mm-hmm. so that's us talking to child placing agencies parents school systems judicial systems insurance companies medical professionals mental health professionals to really educate them as to what's going on in the industry, what is the history of this industry and how it's really not evidence-based at all, and what are the long-term effects of a teen or a child going through this industry and to, in hopes of really being able to affect that pipeline going in. Then we have our Survivor Empowerment Initiative, which is the other end of the stick, is the survivors who unfortunately are already survivors and are very much so struggling. And how do we support them? So there's two components in our empowerment initiative. The first is we are now rolling out, actually in the first week of December, the first Saturday of December, we are rolling out survivor support groups, which are gonna be led by a psychologist and a psychiatrist, a man and a woman, who will focus on trauma. And this is for free for the entire community. We really feel like this is something we need to give back to people who not only are dealing with their own trauma, but many of them have dedicated their lives to trying to help the kids. We focus so much, help the kids, like what about them? They need to be helped as well. And so we want to be able to give back to them. So that's one of the ways we're doing that. And then there's also the issue of the survivors who are just fresh survivors. And this is a area that is, you're so vulnerable. 
you're freshly abused and you are clueless as to what's going on. You have to reintegrate into society, which is super difficult. So we actually have our survivor independence packs. And these are for survivors who age out of the program, meaning you turn 18 and they legally can't hold you anymore. And a lot of times they just, sometimes they don't even give you 10 bucks, but you just try to get a bus ticket and you have to find yourself home. If your parents allow you home and a lot of places will want you to finish the program even though you are 18 and sign yourself in if that makes sense so mm-hmm. a lot of parents will be like no until you finish the program you're not allowed home so they'll end up homeless oh. and so a very high rate of survivors that turn 18 in programs end up homeless so these independence packs we are putting together by and silence are being shipped out to these 18 19 year olds that are just getting out of programs and it's got a laptop that has resources it's got templates for resumes and how do you learn a trade lgbtq plus resources mm-hmm. domestic violence resources abuse resources. It comes in a backpack. It's got a gift card and some feminine hygiene products if they're female. It's got contraceptives. So it's basically just this resource pack and survival pack to be sent out to these kids to just try to hold them over and try to help them. So we're really trying to kind of build those up and get more things to put in them so that we can, you know, help these kids that are just so fresh out of the program. How are you finding them? And honestly, I did some boosted posts on my Instagram and put a picture of me and one of my other coworkers putting these packs together on it and just boosted it. And we actually got two. Oh, so wow. we were really excited about that. But that's one thing we're really trying to do. We've got like 25 packs ready to go yeah. and to go out as soon as needed. So wow. honestly, if there's anyone listening that knows someone that just got out of a program and they're struggling to find a place to live, battling homelessness, please reach out to us, please. We want to be able to help you guys. It just makes me feel fresher that you, uh, as a person who's been through this program, has to take that on that the programs are not <laughs> setting these people up for success it's pretty ironic when they beat into us for so long personal accountability isn't it and, and then we get out and they're taking zero accountability for the effects yeah. that they're having on us yeah, yeah. i find it I know. so interesting my stepson is nine and he just mm-hmm. got diagnosed with adhd and mm. so we really advocated to change his school And we found a school still within the public system, but it's considered an alternative program. There's 16 kids in his class in a four or five split. It allows him to something as simple as because he has ADHD, he wouldn't eat at snack time because he'd be too busy talking because he was (laughs) depressing talking during class time. And then he wouldn't eat and then his blood sugar would crash and then he would have a meltdown. And then like you could just see all the things. And so something as little as the school allows, they're really teaching self-advocacy. And so if you're hungry, it doesn't matter what time it is. Like you go to your backpack and you get yourself a snack because you need to fuel your body. And what they're really working on emotional intelligence and watching the transition that he's made from last year where they didn't have enough resources to support him. And he wasn't fitting the mold of what, I don't somebody who said this is what you have to do from nine to three every day in class. He's not capable of that because that's not how his brain works. And we've been working really hard at changing how we parent. And that looks like being really consistent with bedtime, really mindful about what he's eating, when he's eating, how much exercise he's getting. Like just like things like that. We're just like championing him because 
ultimately, our job as parents is to send these kids into the world to be contributing members mm -hmm. of society and like school and most things aren't set up to support that in anybody who is anything but neurotypical and, exactly you know even yeah. looking into as you get into 12 13 15 16 i don't know that mainstream schools are set up to support that like no. it's just kidding, no. oh are you acting out you get suspended mm -hmm. okay now this kid's out of school for three days and you yeah. know he's like such a great kid but i could see how if we were just like, nope, you've got to sit in your chair. No, you can't eat yeah. outside of snack time. You can't yep. do that. You have to sit still. Stop wiggling. You're just bottling it up. And then you're getting these like explosive things. Exactly. And I'm the same way. So I'm diagnosed autistic and ADHD. Now, my autism diagnosis came three months ago. Yeah. So back when I was a kid and they were calling me disruptive and being labeled as ODD, which your stepson, the eight-year-old, like he likely would have got that diagnosed. That ADHD kid is overstimulated yeah. and is not able to stim and do the kind of things that he needs to do to keep his energy levels in check. Yeah. You're just trying to, and that's what they did to me. They punished me for being an individual, for being neurodivergent at all. So what does that do? And what would it have done to your son to stay in that environment? taught him to mask yeah. and he would have been an expert right. masker but masking is just basically setting up your own little prison within yeah. your body and it's just going to cause havoc on your body as you grow up and i know that now as a 37 year old highly masking autistic and trying to yeah. learn how to take off that mask and what that looks like and it's interesting that i love hearing that your teachers are like actually listening to you because back when i was a kid like they would have been like no that's yeah treat one treat them all right yeah but i think that what you guys are doing is harder what they are saying is the way to go so if you had an answer of we can see this therapist who's going to help us with this we'll have to talk to every single t teacher then we have to get a 504 plan i think is what it's called we have to go through the district we have to do this and that, that's work that's a lot of work so if someone comes to you and it's like oh we can actually we can fix your son we can fix them. That's why yeah. parents are going, I don't have time. Maybe they work three jobs and they can't, they don't have enough time to do all this stuff. It is easier to just be like, okay, you're saying you have the answers. Okay. You know, I guess, you know, takes a lot of dedication and advocacy to be the voice for your kids. Mm -hmm. And the more kids you have, the heart, the more it takes out of you. And so I think that's where some parents find themselves like, oh, this is exhausting. And here's this person saying they have an answer and this is the only answer. And if I don't do it, then they're going to end up homeless or pregnant or fill in the blank. That's what they yeah. do. But it's good to hear that at least it's happening for you guys. That's, I don't know, doesn't seem very yeah. common here. It's really interesting because now you hear like the boomers, like our parents are like, well, yeah. it's just being diagnosed these days and everyone's just being diagnosed with oh, this or the other thing. And it's like, we all should have been diagnosed back then. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, you told us that we were bad. You told us that we were disruptive. You punished us instead of really trying to, f and obviously they didn't have the resources that they needed to be able to do these things. But it is really frustrating when you hear your parents saying like, why is everybody being diagnosed with things these days? And now where there's so many 30, 40 year olds who are struggling trying to figure out, like you said, we all learned how to mask and now we're all trying to figure out how to be. Exactly. What's typical, like what length of time is typical for a kid to be in a program? So it depends on the program. I'd say for wilderness, wilderness therapy, wilderness camp, or whatever they choose to call it. It's not evidence-based, but anyway, I'd say that's going to be up to six months sometimes. Mm -hmm. If it's longer than that, I don't really see it longer than that. That would be a really long time. But those are almost always feeder places, right? So that you go to right. wilderness, 
And then you get fed into a different type of program, whether that be a residential treatment center or a therapeutic boarding school or a, let's see, religious academy, all of them. So then once you go there, I'd say it's anywhere total from one to three years. So it's a long time. I know people though that were in and out of like, let's see, like I on silence that was in 12 programs. Oh my God. God. And is it like the parents weren't just getting the result they wanted? I don't even know. I think that it's probably, depending on the person, it's going to be they, a lot of parents want their kid to be a certain way, right? Sending their their kid there. Oh, they're still acting like this. So they can, they need to go back. But like their kid is just different than them. Because they're acting like that because you kidnapped them in the moment. Yeah, it could be because we were kidnapped. But then like another thing is uh, you're, we're talking about mental health issues. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about depression, self-harm, things like that. Those don't always go away. Like these are things that we will continue to deal with. So continuing to send your kid there thinking that, oh, this time it's going to fix it. It's not really getting fixed ever. Like we'll always have anxiety if we have anxiety. It's always going to be there in some way. And, and then you have the places like WASP schools. I don't know if you've ever heard of WASP programs. Of so it's the Worldwide Association of Specialty Schools and Programs. Most WASPs are shut down because of the extensive abuse that was going on. So WASPs actually had a, a rule that... If you go to a WASP, you can go to another, they'll take you. So a lot of kids got sent to WASPs more than once because if it's like, hey, works the first time, <laughs> if it yeah, doesn't, yeah, you'll take yeah. them again, you know? So WASPs like sometimes have more than one stay at a WASP facility. Are any of these programs encouraging regular therapy and medication? Okay, so medication is something that is either they love it and give you a ton of it or some places like some religious places academies they won't even allow medication so let's say you have ADHD sorry you're off of your stimulant sorry you're not taking this you're not taking that so I know one person that told me like it's against the bible so they not allowed to have medications so it's very split on what type of facility is doing it but a lot of times like when I was in my the psychiatric hospital I was diagnosed bipolar the second day, which you can't be bipolar before 18. Just just throw it out there. No. No. And uh, they were like so certain I was bipolar. So they put me on 1200 milligrams of trileptol and which is like high and then Seroquel and Trazodone and like all of these psychiatric medications. And I remember I'd go to the nurse's station. I'd do the cheek check, make sure I didn't cheek my meds and it was like a race against the clock to get back to my bed at night without falling over. So I remember every night I'd put my hand on the wall and I would lead it to my room and I'd get so dizzy as I'm like, oh my God, make it to my bed, make it to my bed. And I actually recently found four years worth of journals and I had just had this like spiraling week (laughs) where I read them all. And you can see in my journal, my handwriting is like, I just took my meds and then it's going off the page and it's, oh, you can't no. read it. And it's like, I don't oh. like how I feel on this. I wish I could not take them anymore. And I'm like, I hate this. I feel so sick. Oh my God, I just throw up. I just threw up. I'm saying the abuse like in these yeah. journals and there's nothing I can do about it. Are and these so, places like, consulting with the parents saying, hey, we're putting your child on this medication or is it just a the parents no. are like, this is what you no. got to do. You do what you got to do and we're good. Here's the sad thing is that in order to have a child, A, be abducted, right? And from their home to their, you're signing away custody. So you are 
literally giving them the decision-making powers. So yeah, they'll, they'll throw you in the loop. Sometimes they'll say, oh, just so you know, they were being extremely manipulative. And so they, it's their own narrative though, right? Absolutely. They were doing this and this and they're faking, they're faking suicide attempts, let's say, even though let's say it's real, right? So yeah. They'll have their own narrative and they'll say, oh, they're doing this, they're being manipulative. We feel like they need to go do this medication and this medication. Like, oh, okay, whatever you think. They, they have been a lot of times brainwashed as well into believing yeah. that they know best. And then there's also this mentality of all or nothing. We already sent them away. We have to trust the process. Yes. So they kind of bank on that. Then there's also the element of the diagnosis codes that exist in the medical field, right? They do more than just allowing medication. They also dictate stays. So that's why you'll see something like ODD, like that is something very hard to treat and you'll likely have a longer stay at an RTC if you have ODD. Well, if you have ODD and bipolar disorder, whoa, wow. Now they can really, they're incentivized to keep them there even longer. So it's a dual-edged sword and also medications and quite a few facilities help to tame patients they do a lot of sedatives so that you're able to just have more control over the kids there's a lot of facilities like that there's also quite a few facilities that don't over medicate and just give them their medications whatever the doctor says but a lot of times the parents have no control and the kids certainly don't have control right yeah. so even in the facilities where they're not over medicating let's say they the kids have no say in this um, mm -hmm. If they say, I don't want this, too bad. And that's why also, I might add, you see a lot of programs that are in states that have medical autonomy not at a low age. Mm -hmm. Utah is one of them. A few states have medical autonomy at soon as I think it's like 12. Oh. So you have to give consent yeah. to have people put stuff into your body at the age of 12. That's why we see kids from California being shipped to Utah mm -hmm. or being shipped to what was Montana had a lot of programs. Oregon had a lot of programs before Senator Gelser did great work there. So they would ship away to places that are more lenient and then mm -hmm. you don't have much of a say. A very large amount of people who went to a facility in Utah arriving at like age 14, 15 and had forced pap smears because they have no say. That's, that's sexual assault. People aren't really realizing that, that <laughs> like how that can be traumatic to someone when they're that age. Yeah. So, traumatic to me and I'm 38. <laughs> exactly. Like I would die if that happened to my daughter. Yeah. So oh my God. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. It just so. seems like a monster that you're trying to come up against. There are Paris Hilton and people who have come out against these programs, but the money and the power yeah. and the people that are keeping these going and the manipulation, it just feels so. It's big. Yep. But honestly, when we went to DC with Paris Hilton and all of us, all the survivors were with us and we were advocating for change. We're going into legislators' offices and talking about our experiences, really advocating for legislation that can help change us. We're being listened to. And now mm -hmm. Senator Murray and Senator Wyden have opened up into federal investigation into the four huge companies in America that are the biggest proponents of these kind of facilities and for abuse allegations. So this is a big deal. And then Paris, like I said, she's obviously brought a lot of attention into the industry and helping us make changes. And we're starting to see 
the tipping point. We're really, I feel like we're at it. We have really good relationships with the media and being able mm -hmm. to get that out there. Just, we're seeing a lot of attention being focused on it. And, yeah. oh, I was gonna, I was gonna mention that just over Thanksgiving break or right before Thanksgiving break, we noticed a few different programs updated their websites talking about what is unsilenced and just totally trying to like throw us under the bus. Oh, oh my God. And there were people that were like upset about it because they're volunteering. I'm like, no, I'm smiling. I am good. so happy that they're doing this. They're they scared. Yeah, <laughs> they know and they're scared. And they're like trying to downplay like, what is this hashtag breaking code silence? What yeah. is unsilenced? And oh, they're so biased. They All of their experiences for, were from over 20 years ago. I'm like, that's interesting because we have a 19 year old that's sitting right here. <laughs> she yeah. was abused last year. It's yeah. really weird that you're saying that. So they're already trying to counteract yeah. the progress that we're making. And this is some this is a slow and steady race. It's a race that like we're not gonna stop until the kids are safe away. going away. So they and can so they can update their websites all they want, but yeah. you know, it's it's cute. It's cute, but yeah. we're not going away. Yeah. What would you say is the best way that people like us, that people listening who maybe aren't as impacted by it because we don't have that experience, how can we make a mark? How can we support you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, we love support. So definitely head over to unsilenced.org and we have such an incredible amount of resources over there. We're talking, I think we're up to 85,000 documents on our website, on our archive that we hold of DHS records and abuse wow. allegations, lawsuits. It's our way of forcing transparency in this industry. Please go check it out. It's just such a wealth of information over there. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a lot about the TTI timeline and learning about that. I can also give you a link to our YouTube video of what, what is the troubled teen industry and being able to watch yeah. that and really understand Absolutely. more. And then sharing our posts heading over to our Instagram and being able to help spread the word. And then obviously donating to Unsilenced. Yeah. We are a new organization. We launched just this year in January and are up against a really massive industry. Mm -hmm. It obviously takes a lot of resources to be able to keep that many kids safe because it's literally 120 to 200,000 kids are found in these facilities every year. We really want to focus on keeping them safe. And right now we have a pause on volunteering, but we're going to be opening up for volunteer positions as well soon. And so if you're interested, you know, unsilenced.org has all the information. Oh, Meg, thank you so much. I'm so thankful to be able to pick your brain and hear it from you and the work that you're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, for people listening, you can stay in touch. I'm on TikTok at, at Meg Applegate, but it's A-P-P-E-L-G-A-T-E, <laughs> uh, which is annoying. And then also at Meg Applegate for Instagram as well. And I'm always posting updates for the org and the movement. Yeah. And on Twitter, I'm always posting updates about the industry and new programs that are being shut down or investigated and how to help in those kind of ways too. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll be Thank in touch you. really soon. All right. Yes, Sounds you. great. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye-bye.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.